Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Just a note at the top of the show... We're going to be attempting several Japanese words, and we do not speak Japanese. We've tried our very best um, to get our pronunciation right, but um, we are bound to to get some things wrong. We're, we're um, trying our best, and we're including the Japanese words for things um, in addition to the English translations, just because I think that's kind of the right thing to do. Um, but hopefully we don't butcher it too bad. Just um, have some patience with us. And also, um, a bit of a disclaimer, this show will have a lot of references to abortion, and a lot of them are very graphic and kind of gory. Um, it's it's sort of um, par for the course when, when you're talking about this sort of subject matter. So if that kind of thing, if um, pregnancy loss and, and things like that really... Um, are, are triggering and upsetting to you, then you might want to, to sit this one out um, or exercise extreme caution. Welcome to Dig, the history podcast. Imagine you're a teenage girl living in Japan in 1982. You probably have cute feathered bangs framing your face. You're probably wearing a floral skirt with hose and heels and a boxy ivory sport coat shaped with broad shoulder pads. You come home after school with some girlfriends where you sit around reading magazines. You pick up your favorite magazine, Joshe Jishin, which is women's own. And when you open to the middle page, expecting to see a spread on the latest heartthrob or an advertisement for a new cosmetics line, your heart skips a beat. Instead, you see horrific, bloody images. A nurse up to her elbows and blood hemorrhaging from between a young woman's legs. Grotesque fetal remains on display. A tiny silk coffin housing the remains of an aborted fetus. A screaming teenage girl, just like you, grabbing fistfuls of her hair, trying to shake the haunting images of her aborted fetus from her mind. You read the characters alongside the bloody scene. They say, that's right, it was a bolt from the blue. All of a sudden, lying under the covers, I couldn't move, like I was being sat on by a ghost. I was so scared. And when I opened my eyes, a baby had floated up 
out of the darkness. I could hear it crying, Oh yeah, oh yeah. When I got up the next morning, my sheets were soaked with sweat. All I could think was that the child I had aborted a little while ago had somehow wandered into my dreams. So after that, every night I've been praying. My baby, I'm so sorry. The article goes on to explain that Mizuko spirit attacks, or hauntings by the spirits of aborted fetuses, are on the rise among middle school and high school girls. You read another testimonial, quote, You probably won't believe it, but Mizuko spirit attacks are really frightful. Last summer, I got knocked up. I went to the hospital for an abortion. But about a week later, I started hearing the crying voice of a baby in the middle of the night coming from inside me. Soon after that, a red blob came out of me, and when I looked at it closely, it looked like a baby. I was so scared. So last Sunday, I went to a temple in Kamakura and offered incense before a statue of Mizuko Jitsu. That's what happened to me. Be careful, everybody. End quote. Maybe you or one of your girlfriends had gotten an abortion. What if this happened to one of you? What if it already was happening to one of you? What if your F on a math test last week was due to the angry spirit of your aborted fetus? What if that's why your grandma died? Or why your girlfriend got into a car accident? Or what about that nightmare you had last week? Was that your aborted fetus coming back to haunt you? At this point, you'd do just about anything to placate that Mizuko and ensure that you were free from its vengeful wrath. End scene. <laughs> so this exact scenario, or um, something like it, did happen to many young women in Japan in the 1980s. There was a sudden uptick in Mizuko spirit attacks among young women and a media blitz about this phenomenon. But what are Mizuko attacks exactly, and which came first, the media blitz or the hauntings? How were young women supposed to get rid of them, and what did this all mean? Find out on today's episode about the history of Mizuko spirit attacks. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We are so honored to have listeners all over the world, a global community that is reflected in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Jesse in Florida, Lauren and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland, Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo, New York. Thank you from the bottom of our historian hearts. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Mizuko, which literally translates to water child, is a Japanese word that refers to aborted, miscarried, or stillborn fetuses. The term has no scriptural foundation in Buddhist or Shinto texts, and its origins are shrouded in obscurity. Linguists suspect the term originated in northeastern Japan, where it was customary to place the remains of aborted fetuses in straw sacks and float them away into the sea to dispose of them. 
It's not entirely clear when Japanese women began to fear attacks by the spirits of their vengeful aborted fetuses. More on that in a minute. But it's clear that beginning in the late 1970s, women began requesting and paying for a new religious rite called Mizukokuyo, Water Child Memorial, that Buddhist and Shinto priests had never heard before. The Japanese tabloid media was certainly preoccupied with Mizuko beginning around 1980. Gory spreads featuring monstrous fetuses sat alongside narratives about tatari, or hauntings, perpetrated by vengeful aborted fetuses against their would-be mothers. It is perhaps telling that, on the same page, a woman could also find advertisements for temples that performed Mizuko Kuyo, along with addresses phone numbers, and prices for sponsoring the memorial that could end her hauntings. Fees ran from the equivalent to, uh, you know, like U.S. $20 for prayers for one Mizuko to U.S. $1,500 for an elaborate service and stone statuary. One Osaka temple advertised its discount for three Mizuko or more. The robust Mizuko Koyo business in 1980s Japan might have had you thinking that this was a time-honored custom, but the earliest record of a Mizuko Koyo being performed dates to 1971, and most religious authorities in Japan date their own participation in the ceremony to 1979 or later. So where did this come from? Some scholars of spiritualism in Japan believe that the 20th century revival of Mizuko Koyo may be a contemporary refashioning of folk beliefs surrounding Mwenbotoke. Mwenbotoke are needy spirits of the dead who wander endlessly for food and comfort. Often these spirits lack a connection with their living family, so their deaths were not commemorated in the usual way. Oftentimes, when Botoke suffer unnatural deaths, dying when they were young or suddenly when they were in a state of anger, jealousy, or resentment. They are unsettled spirits whose deaths were problematic. Since the 15th century, Japanese Buddhists have acknowledged that not all deaths are good deaths and that not all the dead have family who commemorate them properly. Muen Botoke were inevitable. To address this inevitability, Japanese Buddhist sects developed a rite called Sagaki-e, feeding the hungry ghosts, which resembled an exorcism. Sagaki-e, a ceremony meant to address potentially dangerous spirits, sits in opposition to the Buddhist ceremony of Oban, which the Japanese used to honor the spirits of their benevolent ancestors. So this idea of needy or angry spirits has a history. Japanese Buddhists of all sorts have taken or left these ideas to varying degrees. The belief in Muyon Botoke served to reinforce the belief in angry spirits more generally and the practice of honoring dead ancestors. The folklore surrounding supernatural beings called yokai become a cultural obsession during the 18th century. Edo society delighted in inventing, naming, and mythologizing new yokai as a form of entertainment. Japanese illustrators created encyclopedic tomes dedicating one page to each yokai and writing accompanying captions and stories. Kagawa Masanobu has argued that this century experienced a yokai revolution. In this environment that privileged the supernatural, Edo-era Buddhists develop intricate rites dealing with death and ancestor worship. One of the yokai that most haunted Edo society was the obume, the ghost of a woman who had died in childbirth. 
Buddhist tradition held that dying in childbirth had a terrible karmic impact. According to the Blood Bowl Sutra, composed in China in 1200 CE, such sad souls were sent to the pool of blood hell and prevented from achieving Buddhahood. The horrors of eternity, as in Obume, have been captured in the encyclopedia yokai descriptions favored by Edo artists. Ubume are typically haggard women with flowing black hair, wrapped in blood-stained sheets, bent over the corpse of their dead infant in despair, and always they wander in the pouring rain. Some depictions, those that combine Chinese and Japanese folkloric traditions, show the Obume as bird-like. The text accompanying such illustrations reveal their nocturnal activities. Quote, Ubume can devour the spirits of people. They were frequently seen in Jinzhou. They turn into flying birds when wearing feathered garments and into women when not. Thus, they have two breasts. They favor grabbing the children of others and raising them by themselves. Parents who have a child at home should not dry the child's clothes outside during the night. The bird flies at night and will mark the clothes with blood. Thereafter, the child will be immediately attacked by diseases like epilepsy or infantile malnutrition. These are diseases without reason. The birds appear only as female, never as male. They fly and hurt people during the night in the 7th and 8th lunar calendar months. The text continues, quote, The birds are similar in appearance to seagulls and sound like seagulls as well. They can change shape into a woman bringing forth a child. In this form, whenever they meet a passerby, they plea for them to carry the child for them. If the passerby flees in fear, the obume will become angry and inflict on the passerby a strong cold and high fever leading to death. If the passerby is brave and strong and promises to carry the child, there will be no harm. When the passerby nears his home, he may feel the weight of the child on his back lighten before it disappears completely. Are these not two of the most spooky things? Yeah, this really is scary this would scare the i know like, <laughs> like being told in a right. you know a fire lit room if you were a kid i would be like oh my god because then every time you see a bird you're like oh my gosh is that a new boomy medieval buddhist monks performed special rites for women who had died in childbirth records suggest that they were concerned with three things the first thing is that the woman might give birth in the grave and come back to haunt her relatives as a nubume. The second thing um, was that the woman's posthumous resentments over her traumatic death might result in her reappearance as a muembotoke. And third, um, they were being careful to ensure that the woman achieved Buddhahood or salvation. The custom of mi futatsu, which means separating the two, was often performed as a preventative measure. The abdomen of the woman was opened and the fetus removed. Then both bodies were buried together in one grave. Folk traditions were regional, but at least some Japanese believed this would prevent the woman from returning as a nubume and cursing their household. In some regions in early modern Japan, Buddhist monks favored a symbolic version of the Mifutatsu ritual, such as kirigami, which is cut paper that's inscribed with mystical spells. Another practice required the Buddhist monks kick the corpse as it was given the tonsure, and the names of ten Buddhas were whispered into its left ear. This custom was believed to ritually separate the fetus from the womb, which also super haunting to think that the corpse of your loved one could go through something like that. Right, right. 
In remote areas, the custom of nagari kanjo, or flowing funeral, was developed to prevent a dead pregnant woman from becoming a yubume. This one is much less disturbing. Four posts are erected either over the grave or near running water. Then a square of cloth with scripture written on it is stretched between them. Family members, neighbors, and passersby ladle water onto the cloth until the ink is washed out. Yeah, I I like that one better. The surgical method, mi futsatsu, was routinely practiced in some places in Japan up until the turn of the 20th century. After 1900, reports of this ritual are rare, but there are some examples from as late as 1950. This suggests that even though the ideas were not pervasive, the fear of ubume persisted until at least 1950. It's important for us to note here that there was no notion that the fetus would itself become an angry spirit. Helen Hardicore, a scholar of Japanese religion, says that the focus for the mother was attaining Buddhahood, but the best hopes for the fetus revolved around a quick rebirth. Despite the prevalence of ubume folklore, there was still no mention of Mizuko. Still, angry spirits were a part of everyday life for many people in Japan. Religious scholars argue that vengeful spirits of the dead were used by ordinary Japanese to cope with unexplained suffering. A significant minority of Japanese Buddhists came to attribute their own misfortunes and suffering to angry ancestral spirits. This gave them a reason why they were suffering, but it also gave them a solution. They must exercise these spirits through an apologetic ritual that would reconcile them to their angry ancestors. Thus, exercising angry spirits could restore equilibrium in their lives and give the sufferer a cathartic release of some sort. This coping mechanism was amplified by Buddhist religious figures. During the Edo period, the Danka system was established to provide for the financial survival of Buddhist temples. The system established temple membership requirements for every Japanese and framed the Buddhist temple as the one-stop shop for all ritual needs, especially those related to ancestor worship. Because most Japanese tended to live in the same place for generations, they and their ancestors shared membership to the same temple, further reinforcing their feeling of belonging. Rituals venerating their parishioners' ancestors became a lifeblood of Japanese Buddhist temples. The temples, therefore, had an interest, a financial interest, in encouraging ancestor worship and any religious rites that were connected to it. During the Edo period, Buddhist temples established penalties for those who failed to sponsor the rituals that venerated their ancestors. Religious figures, therefore, encouraged the idea that one's angry ancestral spirits would retaliate if it weren't worshipped properly. If one failed to, quote, feed the hungry ghosts, the resultant bad karma would translate into poverty, illness, and misfortune. Such circumstances may account for the persistence of angry ancestral spirits in folk belief, even though they had little scriptural foundation. Okay, so this might explain how many Japanese people might have been receptive to the idea of angry spirits haunting their lives. But where in the world does abortion come into this? Well, That's a good question, right? Uh, And to answer that, we'll need to give you a quick and dirty history of abortion in Japan. Historians agree that there are two enduring cultural constructions of abortion in Japan. So there's these kind of two themes that just always pop up. The first one is tolerance of abortion when performed because of economic hardship. 
The second theme is the stigmatization of abortion when the pregnancy occurred as part of an illicit relationship. And this illicit relationship is usually one between an authoritative male figure and then his exploitation of a maidservant or some other person who who he has authority over. During the Edo period, 1603 to 1867, abortion was officially denounced by the shogunate and the Han, or feudal domains. However, famine and poverty were so problematic among the peasantry that abortion and infanticide, which were practiced regularly, went unpunished. What's more is that Japanese religious institutions declined to stigmatize reproductive practice in the same way that early modern Christian institutions did in Europe and the Americas. Japan's primary religions, Shinto, Buddhism, and Shugendo, were silent about the ethics of contraception, abortion, and infanticide. Abortion was performed medicinally by physicians and midwives using abortifacients, usually. Among the poor, it was used strategically as a means of family planning. Abortion was regarded as inevitable among the peasantry since there were few, if any, reliable methods of contraception. Infanticide was regarded in much the same way. Midwives were accustomed to asphyxiating newborns that were unwanted due to economic hardship. Records indicate a dramatic moment after the birth when a midwife would ask the head of the household, usually the mother-in-law or the husband, hardly ever the mother, whether the newborn was to be kept or, quote, sent back. There's no evidence to suggest that infanticide was equated with homicide or that abortion elicited overtures to fetal personhood in the Edo period. There was, however, extensive ritualization of pregnancy and childbirth, especially for first pregnancies. During the Edo period, the bodhisattvas, Jitsu and Kanon, took on the role of guardian to dead children, including aborted fetuses, though they were not mentioned often. This happened through the composition and consumption of miracle tales. An entire genre of miracle tale called Sainokawara, or the riverbed of judgment, flourished during the Edo period. Dead children were believed to live together near a stony riverbed in the underworld, where they piled up stones, crafting makeshift pagodas to honor their parents. As the tales go, every day they were chased away by devils who maliciously knocked down their stone pagodas. While this certainly sounds like a horrific afterlife, the tales were most often used to instill the ideal of filial piety in children. The dead children do not resent their parents or even haunt their parents. Rather, they honor their parents and spend their days building pagodas devoted to them. Abortion itself was not ritualized because it was so incredibly common. Japanese physicians practiced abortion since at least the mid-15th century, and it was practiced openly without any euphemisms or subterfuge. This changed slightly in 1667 when abortion clinics were mandated to take down their signs advertising their businesses, but they continued to practice as normal. Fetal remains were discarded as trash, often in the Edo River. Visitors commented that the river stank of death as a result of all the medical refuse. Abortionists were only punished when one of their patients died, such as the case of one abortionist in 1680, Edo. Even then, the punishment was relatively lenient. This particular abortionist was required only to give up his practice and face no criminal sentence. In 1868, the Tokugawa shogunate collapsed, bringing the Edo period to a close. 
The Meiji Restoration that same year ushered in entirely different ideas about pregnancy and abortion and its place in Japan. The Meiji launched a program of modernization and industrialization. One aspect of this program was enhanced state control over reproduction. In 1873, the state criminalized abortion. Punishment for abortion was now similar to that for homicide. The new law was rarely enforced, however, until the 20th century. Starting around 1900, several hundred abortionists were prosecuted each year, and abortion was stigmatized as a result. The state's attempt to wrest control of reproduction from the private sphere resulted in the de ritualization and medicalization of pregnancy and childbirth. Some scholars believe this caused a cultural vacuum surrounding pregnancy and childbirth where there had once been rich spiritual practices. In Meiji Japan, hospital births became universal by 1945. Pregnancy and childbirth were handled by highly credentialed and professionalized midwives. While this environment made pregnancy and childbirth medical events rather than spiritual events, women in search of effective contraception did find advocates in the new cohort of professional midwives. A birth control movement akin to those in Europe and America took hold in Japan as a result of the state's crackdowns. It's a cold case like no other. In 1888, five women were brutally murdered in a London slum. Attacks so violent, the killer earned himself a nickname Jack the Ripper. But everything you think you know about Jack and those women is wrong. On Bad Women, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers the real lives of Jack's victims, revealing discrimination that put them in Jack's path, misogyny women still face today. The show challenges established theories about the murders, causing many supposed Ripper experts to see red. Japan's devastating defeat in World War II changed its outlook on reproductive politics entirely. Immediately following the war, Japan faced widespread food shortages and a sudden increase in population due to the repatriation of military personnel and colonial populations to the home islands. In 1946, 10 million Japanese were at risk of starvation, and between 1945 and 1950, the population increased by 11 million. As a result of these circumstances, the new Ministry of Health and Wellness launched a program of population control. The program's feature legislation was the 1948 Eugenics Protection Law. The law legalized abortion and promoted the practice as a crucial aspect of population control and public health. In 1949, an additional economic hardship clause was added, allowing for women to seek abortions for financial reasons. As a result, and I cannot stress this enough, abortion becomes an experience that many Japanese women shared. The state's manufacturing and dissemination of condoms and pessaries could not keep a pace with demand, so abortion became the primary method of birth control. Through the 1950s, abortion became so common that almost all women had experienced it or was very close to someone who experienced it at one time or another. In 1955, Japanese providers performed 1.7 million abortions. For every 100 live births in 1955, there were nearly 70 abortions performed. 
These numbers varied slightly over the next decade, but were still as high as 60 abortions for every 100 live births in 1966. For women born in 1930s Japan, then, abortions were nearly as common as live births. The annual number of abortions have continued to decrease since this period, though it's worth noting that since 1980 or so, abortions have been on the rise among Japanese teenagers. There had been, and still was not, any conception of fetal personhood in Japanese discourse about abortion until the 1960s when a religious group created a fetocentric political action group. Seicho no Ie was a right-wing New Thought Japanese religion that opposed the Economic Hardship Clause of the Eugenics Protection Law. The group organized a political action committee that challenged the Economic Hardship Clause several times in court. This group grew its members to 3.5 million by 1980. The group lobbied for an end to the Economic Hardship Clause on fetocentric grounds, similar to the Right to Life movement in the United States. For example, the following is an excerpt from a speech delivered to the group's annual meeting. Quote, I believe that you know that in this world there are fetuses who are aborted and sent from darkness to darkness. I want to consider the eugenics protection law. In a word, this law is a law to promote abortion. Because induced abortion is legally established, fetuses which should have been born as lovable babies are ripped out upon the surgical benches of hospitals with tools cut up and bloodied and thrown away just like trash what a tragedy end quote another tactic employed by seicho no ie one that is important to the story of this episode revolved around masuko the group promoted the idea that masuko would come back to haunt their parents targeting their would-be siblings seicho no ie attributed all kinds of juvenile issues to Mizuko, ranging from bedwetting to delinquency. The founder's wife, Tanaguchi Teruko, wrote an advice column for the group's women's magazine, Shirohata, and her advice to mothers often revolved around Mizuko. One mother of four, who had an abortion seven years earlier, wrote into the magazine seeking advice for her son's bedwetting and strange white figures he saw in his room at night. This is part of Tanaguchi Taruko's response. Quote, you must apologize from the bottom of your heart to the child you aborted seven years ago. It was wanting to be born into this world, and the gods were wanting to cause it to be born. This is a precious life that you have killed. You have done a terribly wrong thing. Repent deeply and enshrine the soul with proper respect as soon as possible. The tears and sadness of your murdered child have appeared as bedwetting in the child you bore next. The child is crying out to its parents. It appears to your six-year-old dressed in white. Have mercy on this pitiful child and comfort it with a warm heart. There can be no doubt that what your son saw, dressed like a spirit in white, was the fetus you killed seven years ago. You should read the Seicho no Ee published book, right? So she's saying, read our book that we wrote on ancestor worship. And as it teaches, give your aborted child a name, end quote. Suffering five defeats in court, Seicho no Ie was ultimately unsuccessful in politics and in swaying public opinion enough to overturn the economic hardship clause. Their cause was hindered by several corruption scandals and the unwillingness of other religious groups to join their fight against abortion. Their ideas about fetal personhood, or more accurately, 
fetal spirithood picked up on earlier traditions surrounding ancestral spirits and flourished in the 1970s and 80s occult boom. As we discussed earlier, since the Edo period, folk anxieties about vengeful spirits have played an active role in some Japanese people's lives while sitting in the backs of the minds of others. But it wasn't until the occult boom of the late 1970s and early 1980s that these intermittent, erratic folk beliefs began to play a role in the lives of mainstream Japanese. Entrepreneurial religions took to the media to promote a new post-abortion religious rite, Mizuko Koyo, which promised to pacify one's angry fetus ghosts. This craze was particularly persistent because it touched the lives of 1980s Japanese teens who were seeking abortions in higher numbers than ever before, as well as middle-aged women. Women born in the 1930s who had used abortion as their primary form of birth control in the 1950s were entering menopause by the late 1970s and early 1980s. At the time that they'd had their abortions, childbirth and abortion had been so medicalized, deritualized, and quotidian that they never had the opportunity to commemorate or memorialize their reproductive experiences. While entire families are involved in Mizuko Kuyo, there is a special emphasis on the spiritual and emotional needs of the mother. Listen to this narration of the Mizuko Kuyo performed for the Matsuyama family, for example, and this is taken from the book Narratives of Sorrow and Dignity by Bardwell Smith. Quote, Matsuyama no Ie, Mizuko Rie. Facing the altar, the Pure Land Buddhist priest intoned the family name as he conducted a memorial service requested by the Matsuyama family for the spirit of a Mizuko aborted 10 years earlier. Behind the priest, also facing the altar, sat the family of three, Noriko, her husband Maseo, and their four-year-old daughter Masako. Noriko could feel the cold tatami on her feet and knees as she listened intently to the chanted words of the service. The hollow, steady rhythm of the mokugayo, which is a fish-shaped wooden drum, struck by the priest, framed her attention upon what was taking place. A thin trail of incense smoke rising from the burner upon the altar helped to focus her mind on the sutras being chanted on her behalf and for the mezuko fixed in her memory, end quote. So you can see that there does seem to be something therapeutic about the ceremony for women who have experienced abortion. Even if the fear of Mizuko attacks and monstrous fetuses is manufactured and overblown, there still is some spiritual touchstone here that is important to acknowledge. And I feel the need to point out that neither the tabloid media that kind of ran these salacious spreads, um, nor the religious entrepreneurs who used them to advertise their services, were anti-abortion like Seiko no Ie. Um, they merely sensationalized the idea of wrathful fetuses to promote the tabloid sales and to promote the religious rights that earned them their living. Um, and if you think about it, their livelihood came to depend on continued abortions. They did not and do not support the criminalization of abortion in Japan. Still, the damaging psychological impact of Mizuko attack discourse is measurable to some degree. The sociological research group on contemporary religions conducted 
conducted several questionnaires revolving around abortion and Mizuko Kuyo in 1999, and they found that, quote, of those believing that Tatari will result if Kuyo is not performed, 90% attribute the cause to abortion, while only 19% would attribute it to miscarriage. In responses to the effect of having a Kuyo performed, one can observe that this practice has many connotations and that its impact is not simply the alleviation or atonement of guilt. Whatever definitions of these terms apply, respondents were asked to locate their experiences of Tatari within the following circumstances. Affects me physically, illness or injury in the family, unhappiness, misfortune, calamity, appears in my dreams, inability to have children, unusual circumstances, children doing poorly in school, domestic disharmony, and associated others. While each was cited frequently, the first three were particularly prominent when viewed together with personal comments expressed at the end of the questionnaire. So the top three reasons why folks were kind of saying they were explaining how they knew they were being haunted by Mizuko. And those top three reasons were that they were affected physically, um, illness or injury in the family, and unhappiness, misfortune, and calamity. So it seems like, you know, being on the outside and being a non-believer, you know, it seems like this is a continuation of that sort of thread in Buddhist history where folks are kind of looking for a reason to um, to explain and give meaning to the horrible things that happen in their lives. And this is kind of one of those very, um, I don't know, th- this is one of the ways that they explain it. Um, and, and it kind of comes from this culture in the 1970s and 1980s mm-hmm. um, that sort of shamed women. Um, and you know, I don't want to overstate the therapeutic nature of Mizuko Koyo because it is therapeutic, but it also seems like its therapeutic purpose relies on culturally constructed kind of shame and guilt over abortion um, that's relatively new to Japanese society. And it's frankly undeserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, it's just it's a really interesting thing to me that these kind of fetal ghost hauntings were were used to manipulate women into feelings of shame and guilt um, over their abortions. And it just makes me think of, I don't know, I guess I mm-hmm. feel, you know, empathy towards um, towards women who who kind of got caught up in that craze and felt like their well-being depended on on making this doing this ceremony for their angry fetus right. this profession of guilt right like, exactly yeah. and being like i'm well, sorry it was a mistake it's so interesting to me too that this seems to be uh kind of mirrored in the american context right so like what was going on uh that was kind of causing these you know right-wing religious fundamental groups to 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 begin speaking out uh, about abortion And, you know, there was a phenomenon, it was mostly in the 90s, where anti-abortion groups would create haunted houses, right? So you would go into a haunted house and you would be faced with the same kind of pictures that your, you know, uh, uh, avatar Japanese girl at the top of the 
show was faced with, right? Like going into this butchering room where there's baby parts hanging all over off the walls and blood spattering and this poor, you know, woman is being butchered and killed and she Mm -hmm. ends up in hell because of her abortion, right? So it's very much Mm -hmm. the same vein, of course, coming from a different cultural context. No, I hadn't even, I had, you're right. I have heard of those before. Um, I'm probably doing episodes with, with you and Sarah and I never, I didn't even make that connection. It is so strange what is it about the 1980s that 80s and 90s you know and that kind of gets into Ave's uh uh, episode this one and the one she did a couple of years back um on the like satan uh moral panics you know Mm -hmm. uh happening in the 80s and and 90s right like what's going on in the world and the collective consciousness that like causes these freakouts i don't know you know i tried to um the book that i read um i read a few books but the the central one that i read to do this copy that's what she's trying to do is explore the whole phenomenon of Mitsuko Koyo and why people are doing this all of a sudden. And there's like, there's no scriptural basis. There's not even really any historical basis, but she finds some kind of, you know, historical um, basis for people believing in angry spirits, historical basis for angry spirits revolving around parturition and you know childbirth. And so she found, you know, but, but still it's really, if you think about it in a global context, um, which I did a little bit while I was reading this. I was like, wait, this exact same thing happened. Religious entrepreneurs, um, you know, took to television, mm-hmm. televangelists in America in the late 70s, early 80s. Like, why are all these religious entrepreneurs suddenly around? Like, what's going And there's these right-wing groups, and they have these right-to-life things. Like, what's going on? So I think in, in a global context, um, not knowing all that much about Japanese history myself, I was really uh, shocked at the similarities. Um, But I I have heard before, there's a lot of people who think that Japanese and American history really parallel each other a lot. Like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels. Um, I think I've talked to Avril about this before. Um, And sometimes people see parallels where, where there are none, but I think this is, (laughs) this is a definite parallel. And you can't ignore the fact that by the 1980s, there was some form of global media. Right, so, yeah. you know, J- Japanese were Japanese people were being introduced to American media and vice mm-hmm. versa. So, um, you know, I think it makes sense that there was some overlap. I suppose. Yeah, we should we should like put a pin in this one and 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 revisit it kind of around the world when as it comes up. You know. Yeah. No, that would be interesting, and I think our listeners like that kind of thing. So it would be interesting to see if. If something similar happens in other parts of the world, too. Mm-hmm. So listeners, if you know of one, let us know and we will research it. Yeah, we'll add it to it. our list, yeah. our list of episodes. Yeah. All right. That's all we have for you today. Thanks for listening. Check us out at digpodcast.org. You can find our transcripts and our show notes there, as well as some images and things that can go along with the episode. If, if you're interested in supporting the show, find us at patreon.com backslash digpodcast. You can also find us on Twitter, dig underscore history. That's us. Um, and we would love it if you would like to join our, um, you know, small but mighty Facebook group, um, the dig history pod squad you can find it it's public on facebook um and we'll let you in and we just kind of share memes and and chat and things like that um it's small and casual and chill (laughs) um thanks for listening and have a great fall yes happy fall (laughs) y'all happy fall all right bye bye the shongo show oh shogun shogunate yeah in the 1980s japan
date their own participation in food shortages. Sort. Japan faced widespread food shortages. How can I like shortages? Shortages. Abortion itself was no. Oh my god. This part of Ch- Tanaguchi's Teru. This part of Tanaguchi Teruko's response. This is part. Sorry. <laughs> we sound like a bunch of middle-aged <laughs> smokers. Smoky barflies. All right. The hollow, steady rhythm of the... Oh, my God. The steady... <laughs> wait. The, During the Edo period, the Bodhisattva, Dizo, and Canon... Did I do that correctly? <laughs> I just went through as fast. We're, we're trudging through. It's happening. <laughs> There have been, and still was, not any conception. Oh, wait, hang on. We're breaking, we're breaking down I here. I, just, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, well, your, your thing was not my fault, I, or you're not your fault. I wrote it weirdly. Um, Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.